When it comes to driving safely, tire pressure is one of the hottest topics. Now, I bet you guys just all came here this morning wanting to know about your tires, didn't you? It's getting cold. What are you going to do with them? <laughs> so why does tire pressure matter? So both overinflation and underinflation affect your tire performance a lot and can cause serious problems to occur if they are incorrect. According to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, driving on underinflated tires increases a driver's chance of being in a serious accident by, get this, 300%. Don't let your tires get underinflated. While overinflated tires are a greater risk for a blowout. A tire blowout can cause you to lose control of your vehicle, endangering yourself and others on the road. A tire's ability to grip the road is mostly associated with the size of what is called the contact patch. That's the space between of the wheel that touches the actual road. Overinflating caused the tire to balloon, which radically decreases the contact patch, while an underinflated tire flattens the tire out, causing a larger contact patch. While causing a larger contact may seem like a good idea, it can actually lead to a serious problem called hydroplaning. We all know what that is and we don't want to do it. Hydroplaning is a hazardous event when a layer of water builds between the wheels and the road surface, leading to a loss of traction and causing a driver to lose control of the car. Both overinflation and underinflation should be avoided. It is recommended that a driver should check the pressure of their tires weekly to avoid an imbalance of pressure that could lead to hazardous driving. How many of you check your tire pressure every week? <laughs> Yay, you! Oh, that is awesome. <laughs> okay, we don't do that. We wait till that little thing comes on on the dash. <laughs> In the same way, okay, so there's a connection here. So in the same way that we need to balance our tire pressure to avoid dangerous driving, you can probably imagine where I'm going here, we must also keep a proper balance of love and gentleness when interacting with people. So remember the definition. We're actually going to review the definition from the book several times as I'm going through this this morning, so maybe you'll remember it after I mentioned it several times. Anyways, I'm going to begin right now by reminding you of that definition of gentleness. So Chris wrote this. Gentleness is the Holy Spirit-empowered ability to humbly and graciously exercise God's power in just the necessary measure to accomplish his purposes. Cultivating the fruit of the spirit of gentleness enables us to apply the appropriate pressure to help others walk in obedience to God's word. While we do not want to be forceful, we also do not want to fail to apply the level of pressure necessary to help accomplish God's purposes. So we are actually going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 8 this morning. And we're going to see from this passage 
what gentle leadership looks like because that is what Paul is describing here. When he goes to Thessalonica and he brings the gospel to the people, how does he conduct himself while he is there? And this actually, if you remember in your reading, uh, Chris actually mentioned this. It was one of the, the categories of gentleness. So I'm going to begin by reading 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 5. <clears throat> For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So if Rachel and I ever get the opportunity, we really like to give you a little bit of historical background to the passage or to the book that we're looking at or whatever. We especially like to go back to the Old Testament. Well, I'm not going back to the Old Testament, but I am going to give you a little bit of a background to the church at Thessalonica just to help you understand when Paul talks about coming and how he conducted himself, what exactly that meant, what that looked like. So Thessalonica, a thriving seaport city of about a quarter of a million people, was one of the largest and most important cities in the Roman province of Macedonia. The main street running through the middle of the city was the Egnatian, sorry, there's not an E there, Ignatian Way, the major east-west highway of the Roman Empire, which extended from the Adriatic Sea on the western shore of Greece to the Straits of, which is now today, Istanbul. So I actually had pulled up this little map, and I was going to put it on your notes so you could see exactly what I was talking about, and then I forgot, so I'm really sorry. So if you want to know, you can just pull up a map on the internet and just look and see, like, how, how long was that? What did that mean? And it literally went straight across um, from, one, from one side of the, the land to the other, <clears throat> so it was very long. The city was founded by a general, this is very interesting, of Alexander the Great in 315 AD. The general, sorry, no, it was BC. The general named the city after his wife, who was also the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Interesting things, right? Thessalonica is one of the few cities visited by Paul that has existed continuously from his day to modern times. And interestingly, the Nazis captured the city in 1941, then deported and executed most of its 60,000 Jews. Today, Thessalonica remains one of Greece's most important cities with a population of over 800,000 people. Paul first came to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. Being forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach in the province of Asia, the missionaries eventually made their way from Troas across the Aegean Sea to Philippi and then to Thessalonica. When in Philippi, if you guys remember all that went down there, a riot started against Paul when he cast a demon out of a slave girl who had been following them. He and Silas were then dragged before the city magistrates who ordered them to be beaten and thrown into prison. 
God miraculously released them by means of an earthquake. And as you may remember, the jailer and his family came to faith in Christ as a result. When it was discovered that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, the magistrates begged them to leave town for fear of repercussions against them. From there, the beaten and battered missionaries made the, sometimes I at least, I don't know if you guys do this, but I think everything in the Middle East is really close together. Like, you know, so they made a journey of 20 miles or something. So the missionaries made the 100-mile journey. Now remember, they had just been beaten and thrown in prison, then released and sent on their way out of the city. They didn't have time to recover from, from the beating that they had had, and they had to make a 100-mile journey to Thessalonica using the Ignatian Way. So as was his custom, Paul began preaching in the synagogue where the Jews were. And of course, there were some Gentile proselytes as well, and a number of influential Greek women believed the gospel. So the gospel was spreading as he went to the synagogue, and the Jews, some of the Jews believed, some of the Greek proselytes, and then the gospel spread even to some of the influential rich ladies of the city. Some jealous, unbelieving Jews became angry with Paul and assaulted the home of Jason, where Paul and Silas were staying. In an effort to protect Jason from harm, Paul and Silas were forced to leave Thessalonica. Being concerned for the young church, Paul eventually sent Timothy to them. Though Timothy's report came back to Paul and it was encouraging, Paul still had some concerns for the church. So he wrote this book, 1 Thessalonians, from Corinth. In, so he was in the city of Corinth when he wrote this letter and he was writing in response to some of the concerns that he had. Unfortunately, the attitude of Paul's enemies at Thessalonica had not altered, and they were accusing Paul by attacking his character. Not only does Paul write to encourage the believers, he also defends his character so they will not begin to doubt the gospel as a result of the accusations coming against him. And I don't know if you guys remember, um, I, I don't remember if it was last year, but, but I went through and talked about the fact that Paul is often giving a defense for his apostleship because that's one of the ways that the false teachers were constantly coming against him was if they could, if they could compromise his apostleship, then it would um, ruin his testimony among the believers and it would stop the spread of the gospel. That was the whole point. Just going to put you on mute. <laughs> Gotta love it. So, <clears throat> sorry, totally lost my place here. But you gotta love the little voices, right? <laughs> So not only does Paul write to encourage the believers, he also defends his character. So if you notice from our passage, Paul inserts the phrase, as you know. And if you look through the book, he actually says that multiple times. As you know, God is witness, you are witness, as you know. He uses the Thessalonian believers' experience with him to defend his character to them. 
Based on their experience of learning, working, and ministering with Paul, they would know that the accusations brought against him by his enemies were false and had no merit because they knew Paul. They knew his character. They knew what he was like. So as he, now he doesn't do this in every book, but he does do it in 1 Thessalonians, as you know, as you, as you remember, as you are witness. So we approach our passage we can observe that Paul is describing the characteristics that marked his ministry among them. The passage acts as a character guide for leaders as they minister to their flock. But keep in mind that it also acts as an example to those who would follow their leader's examples. So what I'm trying to tell you is Paul is saying, here's how we conducted ourselves as leaders as we brought the gospel to you. But if we look back, you can flip your page over to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 and 7. He says this, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So he says, you became imitators of us and then proved to be examples for other believers that are looking. So even though the passage describes the necessary character of church leadership, it should also become the standard for each of us as we interact with and serve one another. As the church members imitate the character of the leaders, they then become an example to other believers as well. So this is the standard for the apostles. This is the standard for our leaders in our church. But then that should be the example that we then practice in our lives. And then we become examples to other people. So you see the chain going on here. So we can't separate ourselves from what we're going to be looking at this morning because this applies to us as well. Paul begins by describing the sinful patterns or motives that they, as the apostles, avoided as they ministered among the Thessalonians. Because there were those who were seeking to destroy Paul's testimony by attacking his character, Paul first reminds the believers of the sinful things he avoided as he brought the gospel to them. So, on your outline, Roman numeral one, Defense against wrong motives. So he says, we never came with, and then he's got some things that he lists under that. So A, under that is flattering speech. We never came with flattering speech. So he's going to first say, okay, here's what we didn't do because that was wrong. That would have been sinful. And then he's going to to flip to the other side and then say, okay, so here's what we did do. And that's where the gentleness is going to come in as we, as we look at our passage. So first, this idea of flattering, what exactly does that mean? It refers to an attempt to persuade by use of insincere speech or exaggerated praise. It contains the idea of deception for selfish ends. It is flattery, not merely for the sake of giving pleasure to others, but for the sake of self-interest. So we can use flattery sometimes just to, to I think flattery, flattery is always sinful, 
because it doesn't have great motives, but sometimes we can just say it to somebody trying to make them feel better about something. This takes it just a little bit further in that it is trying to use it for one's own selfish gain. It is deception by slick eloquence with the idea of winning over the listener's heart in order to exploit, not edify. Well, as we know, this was far from the way Paul came ministering to the Thessalonians. He wrote that we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but what does he go on to say in our passage there? But our own lives. He was willing to sacrifice his own life. He wasn't there to take from them. Rather than using flattery to puff the believers up in their own estimation and use their pride against them for his own means, Paul was willing to give his life for their spiritual well-being if that's what was necessary. So he says, we did not come with flattering speech. And then B, he says, we did not come with a pretext for greed. So pretext, what does that mean? It means something put forward for appearance to conceal what lies behind it. So it's trying to make something look one way with actually having motives to get something else. So then he says, we did not come concealing our motives. And particularly, we did not come trying to hide our motives of greed. So greed means, very literally, to have more. It describes the insatiable and excessive desire to have more and thinks nothing of using another person or another's property to gain its own ends. It is thus a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions, especially that which is forbidden or, or possesses more things than other people. It is insatiable selfishness, greed, avarice, or covetousness. So again, we look at the character of Paul and how he conducted himself. And what does he tell the, the believers? He says, we didn't come that way. Again, this in no way describes Paul's attitude toward the believers. He did not come concealing motives of material gain. Instead, he wrote in verse 9, which is the next verse that we aren't studying this morning. But he says this, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. Paul worked to support himself while he was with them so that they would not experience the burden of caring for him. Again, this is evidence of his love for them rather than a desire to use them for his own selfish gain. And of course, he's saying, remember, I didn't come like that. And they knew that he hadn't come selfishly to use them. And then he also says, number C, number, letter C on your outline, we did not come seeking glory from men. The missionaries, by virtue of their office, could have sought esteem praise and honor from the Thessalonians, but they did not take advantage of their position. Furthermore, love of applause was not what motivated Paul and his associates. Again and again in his letters to the churches, Paul praises God and gives glory to him. And if you just look that up, there will be so many verses that pop up about Paul 
saying glory and honor to God. And so I just have a couple of sam a few verses uh, to sample that here. But to the Ephesians, he wrote this, Ephesians 3.21, to him, God, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. To the Romans, he wrote, this is 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And to the Philippians, he wrote, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So you, you see what Paul's heart truly is. So when he's saying we did not come seeking glory from men, he meant it. This was the theme of his life, that God would be glorified. To the Galatians, he wrote, he wrote this, for, I am, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? If if I am striving to please, he says, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. So Paul did not come seeking the approval of the Thessalonian believers or seeking to receive glory and praise or honor from them because he knew he was a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He only ever sought the approval of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and always proclaimed glory to God. That was his consistent testimony. And I can't help but, so this goes probably maybe a little bit more along with Monday nights as we've been talking, but I couldn't help but to think about the fact that this needs to be the theme of our lives as well, that we would live in such a way that we are constantly striving to give God glory in everything in our lives. That should be the thing that when people look at us, they think, yeah, nobody, nobody would look at us and go, well, she seeks to get glory from people. She seeks praise from people. No, instead it needs to be, yeah, she's always seeking to give glory and honor to God. So then moving on, now we're going to flip to the other side here. So he says, these are the things we didn't do. Now he's going to say, okay, but here's how we did come to you. Here's the attitude we had toward you when we came. So Roman numeral two, leadership like an affectionate mother. The term gentle, so this is John MacArthur. He says, the term gentle is at the heart of this verse. It means to be kind to someone and encompasses a host of other virtues, acceptance, respect, compassion, tolerance of imperfections, patience, tenderheartedness, and loyalty. Paul explained his degree of gentleness toward the Thessalonians by comparing it to a nursing mother who tenderly cares for her own children. So, there was not really any other analogy that Paul could make that would have been more tender than this analogy of a mother. And if we, actually I had, I had planned to go through a few more verses than what we ended up going through here. I was going to go through the mother and then you can go home later today and read about the father, <laughs> but we don't have time. Uh, we're just only going to look at the one, the one um, analogy here of how that they came as a nursing mother. But he does go later to say, and I came as a father. And he describes the attributes of a father and what that looked like as he ministered to them in that way. So A on your outline, they came as gentle leaders. 
So in verse 7, he says, We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. The word for gentle here is not, so the, the word that we're looking at in this verse is not exactly the same word that is used in the Beatitudes, but I have it on very good authority, Pastor Chris, that <laughs> they are very close synonyms. So I was... Well, I won't get into that. I won't take time to give you my little explanation of how we got here. So uh, the word, oh, I guess I already said that. So then Chris goes on in the book, and we have that definition that I already read to you. So John MacArthur defines how it really is used here, but because it is a close synonym, I wanted to also remind you of the definition that Chris gives us in the book. So... I told you I was going to remind you a lot. Here we go. So it is the Holy Spirit-empowered ability to humbly and graciously exercise God's power in, in just the necessary measure to accomplish His purposes. And I didn't read this aspect of the definition the first time. He says this, It is the attitude of the heart that manifests itself in conduct. So it's not something that only just stays here. And of course, we know the fruit of the Spirit should never just stay here. It should always flow through us to other people. And that's what gentleness is. It's a state of the heart, but then it is lived through us, through our actions and our words. The last sentence informs us that the heart attitude is expressed in a person's conduct. The heart is revealed in words, in actions, in mannerisms, in expressions. Gentleness is a characteristic that is first, like I already said, developed in the heart and then is conveyed in the person's behavior. So remember last week we identified the sinfulness that comes from the heart. So we talked about the negative aspect of that. And I read to you Matthew 15, 19. I'm going to remind you of that right now. It says this, for out of the heart come, what? Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. But the same is true when our hearts are controlled by the Holy Spirit. Then the fruit of the Spirit is what overflows. So in the same way that sin comes from the fleshly heart, if our hearts are guided by the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit will likewise overflow from the heart. When a person's heart is guided by the Holy Spirit, gentleness, <clears throat> excuse me, gentleness will be evident in a person's conduct. So John MacArthur helps to give us a bit of a picture of what gentleness in conduct looks like. And this is actually also taken from our book because Chris quoted MacArthur. So he says this, It's courage. It's strength, it's conviction, it's pleasantness from God, not from self. The spirit of meekness is the spirit of Christ who defended the glory of his father but gave himself in sacrifice for others. So number one on your outline there, gentleness encompasses strength, courage, and conviction. So here we see varying aspects of gentleness in the character of Christ. On one hand, we see that gentleness encompasses, like I already said, strength, courage, 
conviction. This was demonstrated when Jesus turned over the money tables in the temple. You guys remember that? On the, on the other hand, we see the tender compassion of Christ who willingly laid down his life on the cross for wicked sinners. Jesus used whatever measure of strength was necessary to accomplish God's will. Now, remember when he was on the cross, what did people say to him? Well, you can take yourself down off that cross. Did Jesus have the strength to do that? He could have. We know that. He had the power. He had the ability. But what was his goal? To accomplish the will of his Father. And so at that point, he did not exercise the strength to get him off the cross because that was more than what was necessary in that situation. Now, actually, maybe it was more to stay on that cross. Both of these aspects of gentleness were necessary in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And the same is necessary in the lives of church leaders as well. And if we are following their example, then it is necessary in our lives as well. So the leaders must have courage, strength, and conviction, or the church will suffer greatly. So at one church that Craig and I attended, the pastor was aware of a man in the church who was in an adulterous relationship. Instead of confronting the man in his sin, the pastor ignored it, hoping the man would decide for himself that his behavior was sinful. The man didn't repent and instead continued to attend church with his wife and children. Instead, oh, excuse me, ignoring the man's sin was not an exercise in gentleness on the part of the pastor. Instead, it demonstrated cowardice and unbelief in God's word. There is an aspect of gentleness that is strong and courageous and must confront sin for the good of the one that is sinning and for the good of those around them, for the good of those in the body of Christ. Gentleness is strong when it needs to be to accomplish the purposes of God. So perhaps a helpful helpful verse to consider as we think of what it means to practice these varying aspects of gentleness is also from our book, 1 Thessalonians, and the verses 5.14. So Paul wrote this. He says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So in this verse... Paul encouraged the congregation to identify where each person struggled, and then he described how they should minister to each one. Without possessing the attribute of gentleness, it would be impossible to practice Paul's instruction. So keep in mind our definition of gentleness. So here we go again. The Holy Spirit empowered ability to humbly and graciously exercise God's power in just the necessary measure to accomplish his purposes. So I want you to think about that verse as we also consider the definition at the same time. Because he says you need to admonish the unruly. 
So he says, to admonish means to caution or reprove the person that is unruly. To be unruly means to be out of step with what it should be, to be out of line. Sometimes it can mean laziness. And then he goes on and he says, then you need to encourage the, which one was it? The faint-hearted. I always get the weak and the faint-hearted confused. So he says, you need to encourage the faint-hearted. That means to comfort or console them. And then he says, you need to help the weak. And to help means to care for, to hold or support. So what does that mean as we bring gentleness to bear on this? We need to be able to identify in people's lives what's going on. Because if we aren't sensitive to their needs, if we aren't careful to see what's going on in their hearts, then we are not going to apply the proper measure of gentleness as is necessary for each individual person. As different people struggle in different ways, we need to be able to dispense the right amount of Holy Spirit-empowered assistance to help accomplish God's purposes in each life. While gentleness is defined by strength and courage, it also encompasses the idea of compassion and tenderness. So we kind of see all of that in that one verse, that you need to reprove and you need to hold and support. You need to comfort depending on the needs of the people that we are assisting or we are loving or we are ministering to. So then we look then at number two. Gentleness encompasses compassion and tenderness. And this is really the way Paul is describing it here as he comes to the Thessalonian believers. He is saying, and actually they weren't believers, remember, when he came, but because he shared the gospel, God did save many of them. So as Paul describes his leadership among the Thessalonian believers, he describes his care for them using the most tender and compassionate analogy. He reminds them that he came as a nursing mother who tenderly cares for her children. So the figure implies a special effort to protect and to provide for every need, even to the extent of great sacrifice. So this word tenderly cares from our passage. What exactly does that mean? Well, the straight definition actually means to warm or to keep warm. It is the equivalent of to cherish with tender love. So I didn't know Sierra was going to be here this morning. So I didn't ask you if I could share this. I don't think she'll care. Um, so many of you remember when Jace was born. He was only three pounds, nine ounces. And because preemie babies have very little fat, it is difficult for them to regulate their own temperature, even in a warm environment. When Sierra held Jace, she always tucked him inside her shirt so that he would be skin to skin with her. Of course, there were bonding benefits, and that's what the hospital tells you. You need to do this for bonding, and that is true. But one of the main reasons she did this was to help him stay warm when he was outside of his little heated incubator. 
Sierra would so gently and carefully snuggle him against her, making sure even his little hands and his little feet were protected. What a beautiful picture of tenderly cares. That's what Paul is saying here. He tenderly cared for them, making sure, as if you will, tucking in the little hands and the little feet so even they were warm. That's the kind of love that he had for these new believers. This kind of loving care and a leader outside the, church, the true church is absolutely unheard of. Leaders in the world are always seeking their own desires. They use those under their power to achieve their own end and accomplish their own goals. However, leaders in the church should reflect the character of their Savior who tenderly and compassionately healed the sick, the lame, and the blind, and ultimately laid down his life for the salvation of his own. But keep in mind this also I'm going to keep reminding you, applies to us as well. We ought to follow the example of our leaders and love and serve one another with tender care. This is how we should interact with one another. And we are sinners. We are not always going to make it easy for one another to respond in tender love. But remember, as John MacArthur was describing gentleness, it overlooks some of the difficult traits and loves well. Always being willing to meet people where they're at, to administer the love of Christ to them. Because always remember, what is, what is the definition of love, ultimately? This is Chris's definition that I've said over and over and over again because it just has so stuck with me. True biblical love is doing whatever is necessary to help the other person look more like Jesus Christ. That is what love is. And that's why the world can never truly understand or properly define love because they don't know what the goal is. They don't know what they're trying to accomplish. So B, they were loving leaders. So verse eight says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So the Greek word translated fond affection means to long for someone passionately and earnestly. And being linked to a mother's love is intended here to express an affection so deep and compelling as to be unsurpassed. And do you remember when you first became a mom, and all of a sudden you discovered that you could love somebody this much was mind-blowing. But that's what this idea of fond affection means. And this is very interesting. Ancient inscriptions on the tombs of dead babies sometimes contained this term, fond affection. When parents wanted to describe their sad longing for a too soon departed child, they would put that on there, fond affection, a longing for that child. So number one, they had fond affection 
for the believers. Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his love for them. As a mother has fond affection for her children, Paul also had fond affection for the believers at Thessalonica. It is natural that if Paul's attitude toward them was one of gentleness, as he had mentioned in the previous verse, that love would be close at hand. Gentleness is always going to accompany love, and love will always accompany gentleness, true gentleness, because both are a fruit of the Spirit. Love drives gentleness. Love motivates us to be so concerned for the spiritual well-being of the other person that we are willing to do whatever is necessary to help that person become more conformed to the image of Christ. Along with love, the other fruit of the Spirit will also be evident, such as self-control, patience, kindness. They are all together. The fruit of the Spirit, it's not called fruits of the Spirit, it is fruit of the Spirit, because they all come as a package deal. We don't just pick to be kind today, but I'm going to be impatient. If we are being Holy Spirit-empowered kind, guess what? We will also be Holy Spirit-empowered patient at the same time. So consider for a moment how we might, how all these work together. So first of all, love motivates a gentle attitude and demeanor. Without love, it would be impossible to practice gentleness. Then consider that gentleness requires self-control if it is going to only dispense the necessary measure of God's Holy Spirit-empowered strength needed to help the other person become more Christ-like. A person lacking self-control may push too hard, causing the other person to become discouraged or frustrated. Or consider how patience and gentleness work together. A person lacking patience may become angry. And we know that from James, the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. A person who lacks faithfulness may just disregard the other person's need altogether. So you can see how we have to have all of the fruit of the Spirit working together. And how is this accomplished? Which is a totally another message, but I have to mention it. We must abide in Christ. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go read John 15. So Paul's love for the Thessalonians was evidenced in his willingness to impart the gospel to them. He did not share the gospel out of obligatory duty. He did it out of a deep, heartfelt compassion and concern for their eternal well-being. He said he was well-pleased to impart the gospel to them. So number two, they were well-pleased to impart the gospel. So impart means to give something by which the giver retains one part and the receiver another so that they both share in the matter. The word means more than just to give. It means to give from oneself. And this is exactly what happens when Christians impart to other people divine truth. They give someone else the good news of salvation, yet without losing possession of it themselves. That is what that word impart means. So from far from coming 
to get something, this is a, a different commentator, he said, far from coming to get something from the people, the missionaries came to share with them the best possession they had, the gospel of God. This good news, which has its origin and source in God, was indeed a priceless treasure that would enrich the Thessalonians for time and eternity. The missionaries' willingness to share this treasure was indeed an expression of genuine love. The sharing of the saving gospel with others was the reason for their call and function as Christ's apostles. Paul's willingness to impart the gospel was motivated by love for the Thessalonians. So keep in mind what Paul's experience had been just before he arrived at Thessalonica. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to give you a bit of the history of, of how he ended up getting to Thessalonica. So remember, he had been beaten and imprisoned while in Philippi. And then from there, he was sent out, 100-mile journey, beaten and battered. It was a difficult journey. Paul could have allowed fear of the Thessalonians' response to him affect his boldness in preaching the gospel to them. But his love for them motivated him to preach courageously and confidently. He could have been afraid. He could have allowed fear to make him come in and, and not preach quite so boldly, not say quite the same things that had made everybody mad in Philippi. But that was never the way Paul shared the gospel. So as a little uh, illustration here, when I was a teenager living on the mission field, attending the mission boarding school, an attitude of fear toward the national people began to grow in the hearts of the adults. There was concern of possible robberies and other things. And at one point, there was even a tribal war that broke out near the missionary support base where the school was located. And then, of course, it quickly traveled onto the property despite the fence that was designed to keep away the unwanted intruders. These incidents resulted in a lack of love for the national people. Instead of a desire to share the gospel out of love for their eternal souls, some of the missionaries began to withdraw from the people viewing them as a danger that must be avoided. Many of the missionaries interacted with the nationals only when it was necessary. And it was subtly done, but still fear drove them to begin to withdraw. And that is a heartbreaking thing. And we can, have, we can be very critical of the missionaries for having done that. But I think we need to take a very close look at our own hearts. When do we cower? When do we withdraw because we're afraid of how somebody will respond to us? And we aren't like Paul. We are very unlikely to be beaten and thrown into prison because we share the gospel. And yet we are afraid of what other people will think or we're afraid of their response. That's not gentleness. That's not love. Paul did not allow fear to dictate his response to the Thessalonians because he loved them to such a degree that he was willing to risk their resistance and even persecution from them. Remember 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, 
but perfect love casts out fear. Paul's love toward the believers was so great that he was willing to lay down his own life for them if it was necessary. The immensity of his love overshadowed overshadowed any concern he might have had for himself. And he, Luke wrote this of him, actually this is his testimony in Acts. Acts 20, 24, Paul said this, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And of course, as we know, this was the theme of Paul's life. He was so motivated by a desire to accomplish what God had given him that he never allowed fear to hinder him from that purpose. This is the kind of love that enables and motivates gentleness. When we love with this kind of zeal for the souls of others, we will be willing to meet them wherever they are and dispense whatever appropriate biblical pressure is necessary to point them to Christ. So there are two ways that we fail to love others and practice gentleness toward them. First, there is the person who is too forceful. And that's usually how we think about somebody who's not gentle. Most often we think of a person who lacks gentleness as harsh, abrupt, overzealous, and generally lacking sensitivity to the needs of the other person. This is the kind of person who fails to practice the instruction from Ephesians 4.29, which if you remember, it encourages us to speak a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. The, the harsh or forceful person is so focused on their own ideas and sometimes it can even be good ideas that even good biblical ideas or instruction, those are the things they're focused on, that they tend to run all over the other person with their words and kind of just plow them over because they are not being sensitive to where that person is. They lack sensitivity to the other person and when they do, their words are not good for edification. They are not words that are according to the need of the moment, and it doesn't offer grace to the person who is hearing it. So that's one way we fail to practice gentleness. But here's perhaps another way, and this actually would more characterize my personality. So I don't know where you would fall in this. The other way we can fail to practice gentleness is by neglecting to say or do what is necessary to help the other person become more Christ-like. This is the person who wrestles to love because they struggle with the fear of man. Rather than saying what needs to be said to help the other person look more like Christ, they cower and avoid the conversation. This is the person who avoids confrontation. They don't want to engage in something because they're afraid of how the other person might respond. And I've had people tell me over the years, oh, you're such a gentle person. I'm like, ah, uh, yeah, well, you don't know my heart because I wrestle with it as well. And maybe I don't wrestle with it on the side of saying too much and running over you with my words in that kind of way, maybe as much as somebody else would. But it is not a gentle thing to 
be fearful of what the other person will say and then not be willing to speak truth. Ephesians 4.15 says, But speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. To speak truth in love requires gentleness. To be able to do that in a way that we are able to confront to the degree that is necessary. And for some of us that maybe aren't as assertive, that means we have to be a little bit more assertive in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can speak truth and love. So nobody's off the hook here. Just because you're not a forceful person doesn't mean you're perfectly gentle. So keep in mind that a truly gentle person has the Holy Spirit empowered ability to humbly and graciously exercise God's power in just the necessary measure to accomplish God's purposes. Neglecting to do what scripture has commanded is a failure to practice gentleness. Just because a person is quiet and sweet doesn't mean they are characterized by biblical gentleness. So then, our last point on the outline, number three, the Thessalonians were very dear to them. Again, Paul expresses his love for the believers when he writes that they had become very dear to him. Dear pertains to one who is loved or the object of another's affection. This indicates that a deep, affectionate relationship had developed between the missionaries and their converts who were beloved by them. So Paul exercised gentle leadership toward the Thessalonian believers because he loved them. Like a mother who tenderly nourishes her baby, Paul tenderly loved and cared for the Christians at Thessalonica. Might we also be motivated by Christ's love toward one another so that we will practice gentleness. And we're going to finish with our little definition, which is the Holy Spirit-empowered ability to humbly and graciously exercise God's power in just the necessary measure to accomplish God's purpose. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that enables us to do what we could never, ever do on our own. We could never love with your love. We could never be gentle unless you gave us the Holy Spirit that enables, empowers us to do that. Father, we are so grateful that you have poured out your love on us because we know that you first loved us, and it is because of that that we are able to love one another. We are able to be gentle toward them, to be kind, to be patient, to be self-controlled. Father, I pray that we would remember these things today, that we would think a little more deeply about gentleness and what it means and how to dispense it in a manner that is honoring and glorifying to you so that your purposes are accomplished both in our lives and in the lives of those to whom you give us the opportunity to speak and to love and to care for. Father, I thank you for each precious woman that is here this morning. I thank you for her desire to know you, to walk with you, to please you. And I pray that you would continue to strengthen us, to give us the ability to do the things that you call us to do in your word. 
In your name we pray. Amen.